This, this, this is a Tape Deck Podcast. Everybody, it's H, and welcome to this very special installment of Escape Hatch, your portal into cinematic pocket universes. The incredible Max original series Warrior starts streaming on Netflix today, and here to celebrate that milestone are two of its amazing cast members, friend of the pod and star of Banshee, Hoon Lee. Don't you hate it when the lag is five years? <laughs> And his co-star on Apple TV's C, Olivia Chang. Feed me chicken wings and tell me I'm pretty. That's that's the key to my heart. Plus, I got to interview the entire cast of Warrior in a special junket to give you their impressions on making the series. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and a review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us because it really does help new listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want, and a Patreon where you can support us and unlock exclusive perks. Links are in the show notes. And now, without further ado, Warrior. So I have to start with a secret uh, that I'm, I'm ready to air, which is that was my very first ever video press junket. I have never done that before. Oh, look at us. You were fantastic. We got a press junket virgin. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you did great. You really did great. Thank you so much. My God. Uh, I, did, I had a long document uh, with, you know, questions written up for everybody and then group questions and stuff. Uh, I mean, given your podcast format, it must have been challenging to do 10 minutes at a time. <laughs> it was. It yeah. was. But people really did a phenomenal job. And then it was fun to be able to bring answers from one uh, chat into mm. the other chat. Right, um, right, right. To, to build on that. How are you doing, Olivia? What's happening? Oh, you know, I just uh, tore off a piece of chicken <laughs> and uh, ate it between that junket and this podcast. So I'm, I'm, I'm doing okay. That's what the audience would be shocked about. What's that? The, the, <laughs> the glamorous Olivia Chan, like Jang, just like hey, man. ripping chicken off the bone with her teeth. Free, feed me chicken wings and tell me I'm pretty. That's, that's the key to my heart. Oh, wow. All right. That's all you need to do. I mean, it's such an amazing thing right now. So obviously we're here in a very special episode. Normally we do movies, but every once in a while we do TV shows uh, if they're good enough. Um, and we're here because Warrior, which has had three seasons, uh, is now being placed onto Netflix, um, where it will be streaming starting today, February 16th. And we are calling out folks to check out the show, watch it, binge it, like it, um, because Netflix, there's a chance if it is able to be a, a, a hit the way it was when it first came onto HBO, um, there's a chance it could get picked up for season four. Yes. Yep. That's our hope. Yeah. Well, it's amazing. I was inspired just seeing you all come on with a guerrilla PR effort and get get everybody together and uh so that was that was just really impressive and um Osric who was hosting the event and bouncing mm. me from junket room to junket room he he told me he's like this show is too important he's like I would do anything for this show oh and I was like I was like hell amazing. yeah I was like I'm there with you man let's go let's I go I bet we could get some money out of him live <laughs> <laughs> just text him and be like I need 20 bucks yeah there you, go. you said you'd do anything 
Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. <laughs> I just started a Patreon account because of you. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> You're the only patron. You're the only yeah. one. Gold That's level. Right. Oh my God. Oh my God. Yeah. All right. So what I thought we would do is walk through the pilot episode, which sort of establishes the whole series of Warrior. But before we do that, I thought it would be great to do a quick snippet of some of the junket uh, discussions we had so that folks can hear some of your other cast members. That sound good? Yeah. Absolutely. It's your show, man. And just a quick heads up, the junket was conducted on Zoom, so you will hear the audio quality is not what you would normally get on a regular Escape Hatch episode, but it is definitely worth it to hear this discussion. All right, here we go. I want to ask you all, you know, American television so rarely features Asian, uh, Asian American characters as the leads. So what does it mean for, for you all to have the opportunity to, to provide the, the representation and just to really take that lead role? Um, what, what does that mean to you for the show? And Jason, let's start with you playing a princeling in your father's criminal organization. It's, uh, I mean, I, I feel so, so lucky and privileged uh, to, to be in this role. Um, you know, when I was growing up as, uh, as a kid and I was in, I went to boarding school in England for a bit and um, there was a school play and I didn't get uh, cast in, in it. And um, I was really uh, upset about it. And uh, one of the, uh, my friend said, well, of course you didn't get cast. You know, it's like, you know, look at you. In other words, you know, this is an English play that we're doing, you know, a classic English play and you're Chinese. And I, I took that as like, oh, yeah. Oh, OK, that makes sense. And, uh, and I went to sleep that night and, and I was lying in bed and, and I was thinking like, but, but wait a second, we're, we're 10 years old playing adults in this <laughs> right. play. So like, like <laughs> you know, uh, and, and, um, and then fast forward to, you know, 20 plus years later, 25 years later, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm on set, you know, wearing a cowboy hat, you know, with Andrew Koji and we're playing, you know, <laughs> we're, we're in the wild west and it's like, no, you know what? Yeah. It's just, yeah. In incredible. Incredible. Diane, one of the key themes for the show is the fight for survival and self-determination and especially for the strong female characters on the show. So what is Myling willing to give up um, in order to secure and expand her position? And how much does she struggle uh, with those choices? It's not so much power hungry, but it's the guarantee of not a, the lack of vulnerability that she, she can't go back to. Um, such a fun character to play, you know, towing that line of um, how far can we push her until, you know, the audience or myself hates her, you know, I, I had that <laughs> so much with the writers, like, I think we're going too far, or at least like, tell me there's, you know, I come back from this. Um, and with the ending of season three, and that these huge cliffhangers for everyone, you know, we want answers, we'd love to, to see, you know, possibly coming back for a fourth and, and, and being able to tie it all up. But yeah, it, it it's such a, um, it, it's been such an incredible journey playing Mai Ling for the last three seasons, for sure. Nice. Turning to you, Andrew. Assam comes to America. He's got nothing. He's looking for his sister. He ends up finding new brothers in Young Jun and Hong as part of the Hopway gang. Um, but once he learns that she's in this rival gang, that's obviously the major conflict of the show. So how does he balance family and the new family, his chosen family uh, within the Hopway? 
Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, that, that's 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 the whole punch, bunch of, in fact, all three seasons you have to see him do this balancing act and finding where his home is, his, his loyalty, where it is his loyalties lie, but then growing in love with his brotherhood and uh, uh, and, and questioning what family is. And uh, I think that's what Jonathan Tropper does, he, is he kind of, he, a lot of his work is uh, is about family and belonging and especially it's highlighted or emphasised in this kind of boiling that's the word right boiling pot kind of world you know uh, uh, based on all real true 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 events and cultural situations and moments and time um, yeah so it's all that and that's all going to be in season one two and three so obviously hoon has been with jonathan tropper for two shows before this so he knew what fighting was going to look like and what he was going to have to do uh tom kiernan for you guys what was it like uh, you know, doing these fights, like what was the hardest part? Was it the training? Was it uh, choreography? Was it the actual execution of the moment? Um, what was that that journey like for you? I don't, I, I don't think I've had anything quite as epic as what Kieran experienced in season three. Because <laughs> that was a season a three was a bear. Cool. Yeah, well, I think we, we <clears throat> with the thing of is like I never looked at our characters as like the fighting side of things. You know, we we actually have a lot of action through the show. Tom does way more. I think Tom does way more fighting than I do. But like those those characters, it always comes out of character. Whether you the mm-hmm. you know whoever we're everywhere on the show, every move, every bit of choreography is inspired by what Jonathan and the guys write, and it, it's all got intention behind. It's all story. Um, it, it was uh, it was great. I've never been on a show where we've had training every morning, where we've had an amazing unit run by uh, Brett Chan that we, we we can go there that's our green room we hang out every day we train and we decompress as well you know making warrior is a hard job you know we're, we're working on multiple sets and um the fighting actually is one of the thing that I think bonds us and and on, under Brett's tutelage I think it, it's therapeutic and it's made us even closer mm-hmm. and and I think it's the best fighting on TV I I, I just think by by a long way Wow, wow, wow. It is the best fighting on TV by a long way, that is for sure. So you can check out all of the rest of the conversation that I had with the cast in the segment that will be right after our walkthrough with Hoon and Olivia. So let's get to that right now. All right, well, are you guys ready to walk through this show? Yeah. All right, here we go. Warrior is a battle for survival and self-determination in the streets of Chinatown in 1878 San Francisco. Assam, seemingly just another Chinese immigrant arriving with nothing in America, is special. Not only is he a gifted martial artist, he speaks fluent English he learned from his American grandfather. Having crossed the salt from his homeland in search of his sister who was sold into sexual slavery in America, Assam is quickly recruited for life by the Hop Wei, the most powerful gang in Chinatown. Deeply naive about the workings of this new world, he will rely on a beautiful and resourceful brothel operator and a cunning fixer who will help show him the way. But when he learns that his sister is the head of the largest rival gang, Assam will have to determine where his loyalties truly lay and what he is fighting for. Only then can he transcend from being just another brawler to a true warrior. Dun, 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 dun. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, just to be clear, I'm the brothel owner, right? Uh, yeah. I mean, in your head? Yeah. yeah. Well, and, you know, we can all dream. 
So, the- so normally, normally we ask, uh, you know, for the uh, favorite movie we're covering, you know, what was the first time um, that you you saw it? So for you, why don't we do Olivia? What was the first time that you heard about Warrior, um, and what was your sort of initial impression? The first time I heard about Warrior was actually helping uh, male colleagues of mine audition for the role of Assam. So. I was a reader for some folks who were um, auditioning for the lead role. And I remember looking at the scene, and it's the scene from the pilot where Atoy has her first conversation with Assam after he, you know, um, gets into a big brawl, and she allows it to happen because she actually wants to see this fighting style. And then afterwards, they have a, a, a chat. And I remember reading it going, oh, Atoy. What if this is based on the real author? Wow. Because at that point, I already knew of her existence. I, I'm already a bit of a you know, Asian-American history uh, nerd. So I recognized the name, but I didn't sure. think at that point that it was really the real author because I was like, oh, 1878, that's later than when the real author was existed. So maybe not. Amazing. So you're like the Harrison Ford of, of Warrior, you know, starting out like on the side and then stepping up and, and getting the big role. That's incredible. You just you just gave her the biggest compliment of her career. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I mean, I wish it didn't quite happen like that. Like I I, I definitely was on the radar for them. Um, Richard uh-huh. Sarkey, one of our exhibit producers and Brett Chan, um, our Emmy mm. Award nominated stunt coordinator. Uh, they had worked with me in Marco Polo, so they put my name forward. And then Jonathan on C, obviously. That was after. That hadn't happened yet. That was after. Oh. Yeah. So, so oh, interesting. I yeah. put myself on tape, and then I flew myself down to Los Angeles, and I was super stressed out at the time because you know my bank account was low, and I was basically taking that gamble. I mean, it's going to be the most expensive job interview ever. And, uh, you know, flew myself down, put myself in Airbnb near the HBO headquarters in um, Santa Monica. And uh, luckily had fun with me who was there to support. And, you know, she drove me down. And I was actually going out for both my lane and our toy. Um, as I walked into the room twice out there, I got two different outfits. So it'd be easy for them to distinguish visually which one was which audition. And we uh, all yeah. and, and then I think two days later, they called and offered our toy. Wow. Imagine if you and Diane had been in switch roles. Wow. I think about that sometimes. Really? Yeah. I think about that sometimes. Yeah. Crazy multiverse. Uh, yeah, you know, yeah, a, yeah, no a doubt. different version of, uh, <laughs> of Warrior. Uh, that's amazing. And then Hoon, you obviously went out for Bill O'Hara originally. Yeah, yeah. And I was offered that. But, you know, I just <laughs> I got to spread the wealth every now and then. I was like, that's too much of an obligation. It's too much time. I got that's hobbies. Right. So how did you get, yeah, how did you uh, initially get into Warrior? Well, Jonathan had started working in the preliminary way uh, on Warrior when Banshee was wrapping up. And we were, mm. you know, we had worked for four seasons on Banshee. And um he mentioned it to me, and I, uh, at the time, I said, listen, you know, I don't know what your plans are for this, but I'd love to audition for this show. And I think that took him a little bit aback, and he looked at me and he said, um, Hoon, if I can't find a place for you on a show that's mostly all Asian, I'm the world's worst writer. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then he revealed to me that he had a uh, character that he had been thinking about, uh, thinking of me for. And... Um, you know, it was it was one of those situations where my work experience with him on Banshee had been so great, and I had come away with such a positive feeling about it and so much reward in the work that, you know, it was a no-brainer for me. If, if there was any 
position available on the show. Mm. But as we learned more about it, it became uh, it became obvious to me that it was going to be a very special thing. Now, I've worked in theater in predominantly Asian shows, but never in television. But one thing I knew from theater was that those those shows in theater the the actors become family, mm. and I think partially because it's quite rare, and everybody there is sort of aware of that. That you know, it's it's not common to have more than one Asian actor, especially at the time, in a production. If you have three Asian actors in a production, suddenly it's labeled an Asian production, right? No matter what it is. So my hope was that this show might be somewhat similar, um, and that that idea and that sort of sense of family would carry over. And I'm I'm very very pleased to say it absolutely has, which which is something you've seen firsthand now. Yeah, I think it's pretty clear our our chemistry and our connection to each other, our love for each other. And I think most people, most of us will articulate that that's quite a unique experience. Beautiful, beautiful thing. Yeah. I mean, we'll get, we'll get through, uh, there's so many, there's so many things I want to talk about, but, uh, as we start to dig into the show, I think that will help us. We had Jonathan on for long kiss goodbye or long kiss goodnight, uh, the Gina, Gina Davis and, uh, Samuel L. Jackson. That was a good episode. Yeah. Great, great episode. And Jonathan's amazing, but his description of wanting something that was, you know, mature stuff to watch on TV, uh, basically doing, uh, film style action and sex and violence, but doing it on television without compromising, which generally is impossible for just about anybody who isn't a genius to pull off. Um, and so I think it is really powerful that a, you know, it, it swings as hard as it does both in terms of the martial arts, uh, and the action and the adventure, but also the fact that it's fundamentally, that's not what the show is like. Fundamentally, it is an incredible character drama, um, and a family drama, both blood and, um, and chosen, um, and how that, how that unfolds. But I just want to kick us off the first episode, or this is uh, The Itchy Onion. This is season one, episode one, streaming now on Netflix. Um, and we have this opening shot. We see Asami's looking at a sketch of a, of a woman, uh, you know, and he's in the dark and these container doors open and you just see light and he emerges out into it. Uh, stepping into America. And I saw an interview where Justin Lin said that was his favorite shot of the, mm. of the whole episode. Just a powerful, a powerful it's, beginning. It's, it's And it's kind of classic storytelling, you know? You get so much information so quickly and mm. it establishes the size of the world. It establishes, um, I mean, it's a literal emerging into light of this, you know, and you're in a new place. Um, puts you with Assam right away. Yeah, mm. it's a great show. It's awesome. And, but very quickly, you know, it's it's muddled by, uh, you know, chance of people on the side. So, Olivia, I'll throw it to you since you're um, a self-professed uh, Asian history nerd. I don't think anyone would ever call you a nerd. We call her a nerd. Only. <laughs> <laughs> Over 320,000 people uh, of Chinese descent emigrated to the U.S. from 1850 to 1882. But this is not something that gets talked enough, uh, talked about enough in America. What's your take on that? My take on the fact that Asian American history has largely been invisibilized and erased it sucks with how you have come to feel and uh, how a narrative has been expressed. I think largely in this part of the world, I think for so many different reasons, for so many different layers. Um, you know, if you were a model minority myth that uh, a lot of Asians uh, carry, um, 
there is truth to that in the sense that if you go back into the history built and you read that the Chinese were writing their own newspapers at the time, there was a call to the community to assimilate, to chop off the long pigtails and trees, which is a huge, huge sort of erasure of your own um, tie to your homeland and your own loyalty to the emperor at the time. You, you can't go home to China if you chop off that pigtails, how public it was, but in order to assimilate, you know, changing out crones, um, becoming friends with the white man. You know, um, there are so many layers that I think even Asian Americans and Asian Canadians aren't aware of. And that's what I love about our show is we actually put in a lot of historical layers um, and create this really rich tapestry that if you actually pull on one thread and start to go down the rabbit hole research here, you really come to realize how much our show is based on history, but we just package it in a really informative and educated way. Mm. It, it, just following up on that, and in a small way, my dad was born in the Dominican Republic in 1934 and came mm -hmm. over and immigrated through Ellis Island. And his mother sort of pushed, you know, you're all going to go, you're all going to become doctors, you're all going to marry white women, you are all going to be fully assimilated and, and be part of that, you know, American experience. Um, and it is amazing how over time, we have pieces of our culture we can hold on to, and then the affinity that we can have of being America. And it truly is what is amazing about America um, is how we have blended these cultures together. Um, and so it's a great, this is a great kind of uh, show that it's not always easy to, to get there. But the first person there talking uh, beyond the chanting is Chow. And Chow is there. He's explaining to all of these, you know, new immigrants that have arrived that they're indentured, um, but they have a job. And he says, follow the rules and work hard and you'll all go home rich men. It's not quite true what Chow is saying. Yeah, no. In fact, um, very few people did. <laughs> right. And, yeah. But Chow, you know, his, so just explain a little bit about how he thinks about that. So Chow in this uh, Chow wears a bunch of hats in this world, and one of them that's sort of implied here is is a role that uh, that was actually in existence, where some people would install themselves as middlemen to take um, people fresh off the boat, set them up, bring them in, and act as a broker on some level for their services to labor and that sort of thing. And you know this is a mm -hmm. this is a very classic sort of role that pops up um, whenever you have sort of influxes of immigration, et cetera. I mean, I remember living in Jackson Heights in, in, in New York, and there were people that were clearly set up to do the same thing. They would help people who were coming over, help them get established, you know, get help them get a phone number, all these things, right? Often mm. that's handled by people in family, things like that. Um, mm -hmm. But in this particular case, in the type of world that we're in, Chow is clearly making a buck on every transaction that he, 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 mm. he, um, encounters and he sees something in Assam that is particularly valuable. And uh, that's one of the, the reasons why um, he's one of the first people to contact Assam is he just happens to be there functioning in that role anyway. Yeah. And I mean, speak about making an impression. This is our, you know, our first time of seeing Andrew Koji as Assam in action as, uh, you know, the racist immigration, uh, <laughs> you know, bullies are trying to pick on a, a poor uh, immigrant and he just kicks their ass. You think you can take me on? That's the wrong question. Oh yeah? What's the right one? The right question is, do you really want to find out? Mm. Fuck 
and then boom it's like straight into the action and the music and uh like everything happening in that fight just very quickly establishes um that martial artist uh component of the story and we go straight into the credits which are some of the greatest credit music uh that's ever been done just absolutely <laughs> absolutely phenomenal yeah and so chow takes uh assam straight to the hopway and I love that Hoon, this this uh, hunt for Red October technique to switch mm -hmm. from, from yep. to Chinese to English is so effective. He's got serious skills. I just saw him take out three immigration bulls. Yeah, it's um, it was something that Jonathan had mentioned kind of early on because we had had a conversation. I'd, I'd said to him, uh, "Listen, if if Cantonese is a large part of this character, then this is this is potentially going to be a problem because you know that's important. It's important for a lot of people, you know." And he had specified how this mechanism was going to work, and that the vast majority of conversation was going to be in unaccented English. And so he introduced this concept, and he would, you know, he's been very open about lifting it from Red October, like you're saying, and um, and I think it's just one of those very small things we've employed it a few times, but it just gives people the the right idea about how they're supposed to hear these characters, and it's a very powerful tool because it means that we're shifting the lens, you know, what is considered the native lens for viewing the characters in this world and that they are, that we are listening to them with the inflection and the connotation that is implicit in the language, even if it's not Cantonese. And that's like hugely liberating as somebody who does not speak Cantonese, you know, to know that you're, you know, you don't have to use, utilize an accent. You don't have to, fret about that you can concentrate on the intention and the character that you're trying to build mm. it's a, it's amazing you know two things one the fact that you you're not being you don't have a natural accent that uh would would work for that and the notion that you're able to just use your regular intonation um in your acting both makes the show more accessible and allows you to be more free to just concentrate on your performance but the other technique that is so powerful is when you talk to each other you have all mm. of your inflection and all of your subtleties but when you're talking to English characters, you demonstrate the fact that you're using broken English um, to try and convey what you're doing. And that was just like such an awesome, subtle technique. It really blew me away. Yeah. And Liv and I are probably the two people that do that the most in the show. Mm -hmm. She interacts with a lot of white people through the brothel. I interact with the police and other uh, people doing business deals. And I, it is, it's interesting to have it in the same world where you get to see, in some ways, you get to understand the limitation of the accent because you mm -hmm. see it in contrast to the uh, sort of undiluted uh, meaning um, when they're speaking amongst each other. And, you know, that's, that's very fun to play with, mm -hmm. but it also, you know, it's really technically challenging. The, the writers have to figure out how they're lensing a given scene if Chinese speaking people and English people spe speaking people are in the same scene. Like, how do you shift that lens seamlessly right. um, without completely disorienting everybody? And it's, it's a surprising amount of work that needs to go into that, that engineering. Mm. What I also love about the Hunter Red October technique that allows us to center the audience within our world so you hear what we sound like to ourselves. And then you hear and understand how we sound to, you know, the ducks in the pond. And you see that mm -hmm. 
we know that we're seen as less than we know that people don't think we're as smart or intelligent because they don't give us credit for actually learning a completely new language but instead they look at us as unable to speak their native tongue in their native way right none of none of them have learned any cantonese at all exactly like let's hear <laughs> right. what your yeah. cantonese sounds like yeah and good <laughs> luck with that yeah yeah it also introduces an idea that's like because you're seeing them juxtaposed with each other you're being confronted with the idea that oh this is how the person sounds in their mind or in their native language this is how they that this is their actual character right and this is how it comes out when they're filtering through a foreign language, right? Mm -hmm. And um, I think that that is something that, you know, sometimes people don't necessarily think about too deeply, but when you have to see it in the show and you've just been listening to Atoy speak, you know, speak her mind clearly, so to speak. Eloquently, and, yeah. Yeah, and then knowing that she's, you're seeing a different filter and mm -hmm. recognizing the gap recognizing that, oh, you know, I might make assumptions about someone who speaks with an accent about what they are like, what their intention is, what their intelligence is. But by juxtaposing it directly with the unfiltered version, uh -huh. you kind of, I think you introduce that idea without like banging people over the head with it and being preachy about it. There's, there's a last element. Andrew mentioned something. Uh, I'll play his, his full clip later, but um, he talked about how he would essentially would like to not have it be focused on being Asian, but just to be in a role. And that's the other thing that it allows us to do. It allows us just hear you acting and speaking the way that you normally would and have that much additional connection, even though we know it's a, it's a story about uh, Chinatown. So I just thought that was incredibly, um, incredibly smart. I was going to say, also, English is like, because I have heard some people raise the question, like, well, why is it all in English? Or why is English sort of the default lens? And, you know, there that is actually considered, it's, you know, this is primarily, first and foremost, an Asian American story. And right. the idea was to design this around an American story that would allow people who are English speakers to access it in that way. You know, um, this is different from an Asian story. And this is one of the challenges, you know, Liv and I face as Asian American actors or Asian uh, actors of Asian background. In some cases, you're seen as too much of the other. And in some cases, you're not seen as authentic enough, mm. you know, for an Asian Asian character. You know, Asian American right. is its own specific kind of stew, you know. And mm -hmm. that's one of those things that I, I thought, they were very clear about right from the beginning. Mm, that's powerful. That's powerful. It, it makes me wonder how the show is aired in, uh, you know, in uh, other areas around the world, how they handle um, the translations and, and those things. Yeah. Um, so let me just, let me just jump into Father June, uh, you know, as, as Chow has delivered him over to the Hop Way. It is interesting. There's these divisions within these different groups. There's no, there's no sort of like homogenous group. Everyone is different. And when uh, Assam does not deliver the appropriate respect, uh, Father June says, What I am is the boss of the most powerful Tong in Chinatown. What you are is one in 25,000 broke Chinese fucking nationals I just bought for the price of a shitty bottle of wine. I tell you this at the risk of stating the obvious to remind you that you are a fucking onion. And before a fucking onion turns away from me, you better fucking bow. 
Mm-hmm. Holy shit. Mm. But in his mind, there is a, there's kind of like a rigid hierarchy uh, within the system as well, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, Harry Young, who plays Father June, he really saw that character as almost a representation of Malcolm X, someone wow. who, you know, by mainstream media, exactly, was seen as, you know, a violent radical. But through a different lens, was someone who could also be seen as a great friend, incredibly nurturing, incredibly passionate about his community and fighting for his community. So Perry really, you know, layered that performance from a motivation of this is someone who cares about his community and the rules are in place because we don't have that opportunity to mess up. Too many lives are at stake and I am tough because I'm actually trying to save lives and stop unnecessary violence. Hmm. It's funny, uh, and you were in that in that portion of the junket. But when I asked him about, because one of the main uh, cha- you know battles within the the series is Young June coming up to take. He wants to take over the Tong and follow in his father's footsteps, and he thinks he's really out of touch and you know too conservative. And then Young uh, Father June is looking at him and seeing that he's just like being irrational and and too aggressive and whatnot. And when I asked Perry about that, he said um, that. The difference is that Father June is Chinese and Young June is American Asian. Mm-hmm. And like the mindset is just completely different. Mm-hmm. And he's a young man, uh, right? Mm-hmm. You know, uh, Father June was swimming over boats with swords and, you know, fighting guys in the, whatever, in the opium wars. Yeah. Uh, he was a more aggressive guy one type too. I mean, that's not an uncommon, I, I, I would imagine every immigrant group that comes over wrestles with this where the, you know, you are watching the next generation adopt uh, an American mindset, mm-hmm. you know, and issuing some of the old world, whatever world that was that you came from. Mm-hmm. That's one of those things that this is an immigrant story. First and foremost, it just happens to be specific about a group of people, just like every immigrant story is. You know, you don't tell, unless it's a documentary and probably too diffuse and and uninteresting a documentary, you have to specify, you have to get down to the people um, to tell a real story of any, with any impact. But when you were talking about that scene, I think one of the things that it starts to lace into the into the structure of the show is that um, Jonathan has always said, our world is based in Chinatown which is again, one of those decisions about lensing. Mm-hmm. The world starts in Chinatown. If we go outside of Chinatown, that's the, that's the excursion outside, right? Mm-hmm. But home base is Chinatown. And so if you were to imagine any world that you were trying to build, it would be incredibly boring and flat if there wasn't internal strife, internal politics, internal divisions, right? Right. That's right. an actual world. So. The, the Tong battles are the most obvious version, mm-hmm. but class warfare is present. And that's something that's exhibited even in that speech you just, um, you just recited. Um, generational divisions between Young June yep. and, and Father June. Yep. Um, you know, questions of authority, competency, you know, allegiances, you know, all of these things. So it's important that it's it's one of those ways that you attack the idea of being a monolith by without talking about it. Right. 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 You just yeah. show it. You just show it. Exactly. Show don't tell for sure. So, so young June takes, uh, Assam to the brothel and Olivia, do we ever get the name of the brothel? No, it's just always known as our toys. Our toys. Our toys. I, I yeah, think okay. there's like, yeah, 
I think the official name is Atoy's Brothel and Wings, isn't it? <laughs> <laughs> Sounds about right. Yeah. I was just going to say, I, I, I unsuccessfully over two seasons did try to pitch the idea of Atoy eating chicken feet, <laughs> which is like a dim sum delicacy. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Yeah. I just thought it'd be such a funny juxtaposition of this like really royal, you know, regal woman, but she eats chicken feet. <laughs> Mm-hmm. So, you know, if you know, you know. Yeah, yeah. I wake a YK. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> Never made the cut. Oh, that's really funny. That's funny. Uh, so this scene where they walk into the bar, you've got Young June, you have Assam, and then we have Atoy. So as I was wa- re-watching the pilot, like, this is a seismic, mythic moment, and she she can size him up in a second and understand and what he's like. So how does she, even from the very beginning, start to, she's keeping a little bit of distance and she's eyeing him up, but she, she seems to be struck by him. Is that fair to say? I think so. I mean, I think at first, you know, it's, the, the, the role is played by Anza Cogent, so... Mm-hmm. I think you have to play off the fact that this is Andrew's physicality. This is who's playing it. Let's react to that. But there's also a sense of, you're right, standoffishness. He could just be another onion out of the bunch. And the real moment that I think Atwood really uh, zones in on him right. is when he gets into the fight with the rival Long Z, And she actually stops Young Jude from stepping in to fend off his own mortal enemies. And uh, she actually wants to see what this new onion is Uh made of. And that's where her intrigue starts. And whether or not she realizes it or has been actively searching for someone like Assam, I think the moment she realizes there is someone who has the potential to be what this community needs. A rallying point. And that, yeah, and that's where she starts to, um, I don't know what the word is, whether she's targeting him or whether she's taking him under her wing. I think there's a little bit of both. Yeah, uh, totally. I, that is it's such a powerful thing because he had made a mistake by referencing who he was looking for. Um, and then that tipped off, um, you know, the long Z and send somebody over to, to take him down. And after this incredible fight, uh, which is, just phenomenal. And again, the music here, the physicality uh, that's happening, once he he knocks all these guys out, the way he sits down on top of the guy, um, it's just so funny and uh, and really fun. Yeah. But after the fight is over, a toy is able to tell him, This is not China. It's Chinatown. And our blood is cheap here, so you'd better learn to adapt. And our blood is cheap. So you better learn to adapt. Yeah. Yeah. I love that line. It's such a Mae West kind of moment that Jonathan Tropper gave me. And I think that's such a great scene to set up the dynamic to come between Assam and Artoy. We mm. talked earlier in the junket about the themes of chosen family. And mm-hmm. the chosen family between Assam and, and Artoy is one of my favorite to play. Because in that scene, he shows how green he is. He shows that he's impulsive and, you know, acts before he really has a chance to think or really take in what the environment he is in or what are the rules here. He just kind of blusters his way through because he has the physicality and a sense of invisibility that I think comes with a, a, a real immaturity. And I think Atoy sees that. And in her way, she doesn't punish him. But she doesn't shy away from putting him in his place. 
you know, I think her lines he blames her. He's like, you know, well, I spoke. He, I can't remember what um, Assam says, but he, he puts the blame on Atoy and I think my mind is something like, yeah, well, you messed up because you spoke the business of friendly info, of course. Yes, yes, and exactly. I, I, I love, you know, Ajit Pedji's reaction to that because it's, I, I always, it always makes me laugh out loud. Like after I watched it again after a few years away when we were prepping for season three, I forgot about that reaction and he just looks like, Oh, shit. You know, like it's just, <laughs> yeah, like when he yeah. reacts to that line. So, and it really sort of sets the stage. And it was something that we really had to find in season one that I had to understand that I was the seafood and that I had to, you know, there's some scenes that now as an actor, I look back and I'm like, ah, damn, I get the note now, right? Because mm. that's it, why. Yeah. Because yeah, it was fun <laughs> to kind of go toe to toe with, with, with Tojo. It was fun to like yell back. But now looking back, I'm like, oh, I know, understand. I now understand how I can play that differently to almost have a higher vibration. Don't you hate it when the lag is five years? Five years. I, mean, I get it now. Five years later, I understand uh, the note. That's my least favorite thing. It's I when I go, yeah. oh, I know how to play this now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> you can work on it in season four. We'll, we'll get there. But, you know, one thing Liv was talking about, which is, is interesting. By the way, I, 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 the second time you mentioned it, and I, I want to heap praise there, too. Our, our soundtrack, um, Reza Safinia and H. Scott uh, Salinas, I believe. Um, yeah. It's such a potent part of our show yes and it really it it harkens to all of these different types of genres and all of these different types of things it puts its own spin on it it, it integrates um asian instrumentation and and remixes it in a very very uh, salient way but um you know one of the things is that in this first episode we have not yet seen at, at this point we have not yet seen how formidable atoy is right uh -uh. in her own right but retroactively, once we learn this about her, we understand that right. she can judge Atsam with an expert eye mm -hmm. as someone who is equally skilled. I never even thought of it that way. That's a really interesting point of information to come back to once you learn more about the character. You know, yeah. Chow says um, he's been very well trained. Right. So yeah. there's, he's, he's good at appraising product. Like that's kind mm -hmm, of what he does, mm -hmm. but he doesn't have the acumen that an Atoy does, you know? Mm. So her ability to suss out true excellence is, is special and unique, but we only find that out in hindsight, mm -hmm. which I always thought was really cool. Seven years later. That is such <laughs> a good point. <laughs> oh, it's getting worse. The lag's getting worse. Oh, yeah. Man, I wish I thought of that. I mean, yeah, I mean, yeah, her, her, her poise and her intelligence, uh, and just her beauty, her presence is so strong. Even when she's yelling at the uh, the Long Z guys just to get out of her, you, know, you can't be in here. Like this is not where this happens. And for her to have created that world uh, for herself, um, where she has this place that can exist again, floating between the factions um, and almost like a no man's land where, uh, or a demilitarized zone where people aren't supposed to fight. It's a, it's very powerful. Dang, that's such a good point. Assam gets branded uh, and Father June says loyalty above all, uh, right as he's, as he finishes the brand. And then again, the music yet again, as he's putting on his suit mm -hmm. and they're walking through the streets of Chinatown. It's so killer. Uh, and again, it is that kind of like uh, Wu-Tang, mm -hmm. um, you know, hip hop uh, infusion that works so incredibly well. Yeah. Um, but the costume work on this show, and Hoon, we'll get to you in a minute, but like 
Olivia, <laughs> your costumes through through these three seasons are just I'm gonna go unreal, unreal. <laughs> you did it, Matt. You got rid of him. Dead weight. We'll, <laughs> we'll get to the top hat. Don't worry. <laughs> we'll get yeah, we have um, three different designers. The um, thing for the evolution of Atva's wardrobe. Um, you know, there are again layers in the show. So in terms of costuming. Um, Jonathan Trapper saw the Long Z as the traditional representation of the past. Other than Joe Taslam, all the characters there have the traditional cue or pigtail. The Hopway, they look very GQ. They look very contemporary of how we like to see Ned's style now. Uh, we break so many rules with the Hopway. And then, of course, there's Atoy, this fashionista who comes out in a couture gown all the time. And <laughs> JT's creative brief for that was, you know, you watch like the Paris um, Fashion Week uh, styles come out. You go, that's so gorgeous. Who would wear that? Um, and he goes, Atoy would. Atoy would wear that. That's where he was pushing the designers to get to and, 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 and go to. We really, it really took, I think, the first season to find Ozma's that you really look closer. The costumes get more and more elaborate. We go a little into like steampunk rocker zone for a bit at the end of season one. Like when we look at the end of season one, I'd walk out and in a coach would always be like, uh, you, you like install this. Yeah. You know, like, you know, cause I, I would be having these like Princess Leia, you know, steampunk <laughs> hairstyles and whatnot. And then season two, we went very like sexy with a lot of cutouts yeah. and fits and trains and trails. And I actually found uh, Toys Movement through those costumes because I had to walk slow. I had to be very intentional in every step. Mm. Otherwise, I really was falling or slipping because in the brothel set alone, I constantly asked, can we do something to rough up these floors because they're incredibly slippery. They're very slippery. And yeah. for the look of it, they wanted to leave it as well. So they were constantly trying to put things on the bottom of my feet to make them have a little more grip. And, you know, I really had to find a way to move to not fall. But in that, I found her gait and I found that slow movement that she has that sort of creates a sense of status and power and, taking up space and the funny thing is is uh, you know i had a conversation with um reza and he told me that it was my walk and the gate of it that gave him the idea of how to create Arthur's entrance music he just worked off my my steps Whoa. and he just matched the tempo this is the music this is the score this is the music when you're ringing the bell oh, it's coming down the stair tip it, it's so uh, there's two there's two portions when you're ringing the bell and then it comes again when at the end of the episode when when you're with us um and this this track is is super slow and it's so just badass and sexy it's awesome uh they they, they really nailed it that's a that's amazing it came from the gate came from the gate so we we transfer out of there to uh chow who is now selling weapons to the police so we should mention now there's another side outside of the home base of the show uh which is uh you know in the pond and that is where we have all of the irish folks and the industrialists and the folks who are really have the the higher level power um of the story but i really love it was so much fun getting to talk to uh both tom uh and kiernan about lee and bill two amazing characters Bill, this phenomenal, you know, grizzled, tough guy, 
he's totally on the take. He's corrupt. Um, but he also has an inherent sense of right and wrong. Like he, he never looks happy about the fact that he's getting paid off. And he always does try to stop abuses, um, particularly of uh, people inside Chinatown when he can. Mm. Um, Lee starts a little bit higher on the horse um, uh, in terms of being pristine. And then we find out actually he has his own problems and he goes on a, on a big journey um, through the course of the show. Um, but yeah, just, just awesome to, uh, to get Chow again, right, right, right back in the mix uh, as we start to see that things are, things are boiling a little bit. Yeah, that uh, Chow's chicken coop. <laughs> <laughs> Chow's chicken coop. She supply he supplies to Hot Toys brothel and chicken. Um, the chicken feet. Yeah, they got to the come chicken, from somewhere. The chicken coop in season one was actually populated by actual chicken carcasses. Real chickens, and it was nauseating. Oh my god! Because um, because you know, production sometimes done a little differently in different parts of the world. And right. we would, we would just be shooting for like eight hours. And like, by the end, you just wanted to hurl because oh my God. it was actual, I mean, they were just going bad in the heat of Cape town as we're shooting. <laughs> and so fortunately, very quickly, they big lights, big lights shining down on them. And, yeah, yeah. Just the ambient uh, temperature and, you know, you're filling the room with smoke and, um, oh. and we're trying to do our lines and it's, it sounds like a small thing. And honestly, it is a small thing unless you're just around it for hours and hours and hours and you're not used to it. Right. Such a small space too. Right. But you know, also for sanitary reasons, but they quickly moved to artificial, <laughs> artificial carcasses, but those first go. couple <laughs> of scenes in there really gave us the, the world in a very visceral way. Um, <laughs> but you know, Kieran, uh, you know, Kieran and, and, and Tom, Bill and Lee, one thing that's interesting about that dynamic you were saying that he never looks happy about being on the take and, and all of these things and you know he does sort of know what's right but he often makes the wrong decision uh -huh. and so you're seeing somebody who is not so far gone that he doesn't suffer tremendous guilt about it but he's figured out the way to operate you know meanwhile uh -huh. he's paired with this person who almost instinctively kind of can't help but do the the right thing, you know, the morally correct mm -hmm. thing, if even though it may not be the lawful thing. And, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's quite telling in later episodes when you see Lee, often he is, he's like charging into danger because it's right. the right thing to do. And right. Bill is the one who hesitates or calls after him or doesn't want to, but then he follows, you know. So as he much does, as Bill yeah. is yeah. serving as an instructor, Lee is also serving as an instructor. He's the one that's egging bill on to come mm. like follow that instinct there's a really i don't know why this seems it stuck with me a lot but in the in the riot of season two after the police are shaken up and they see that the crowd is heading towards chinatown mm -hmm. it's lee who picks himself up and runs after them yeah yeah you know like he is just going to answer that call you know and that's the thing that's the that's the thing that makes him arguably the only like not fully corrupt person in our show right you know although he gets he he gets in there a little bit he gets in the mix uh you know through everyone is challenged in this way but yeah we get to see through lee we get to see somebody who has not mm -hmm. lived in this environment to the point where yeah. it has fully changed him yet um we we get that journey with him in a way that we don't with almost any other character mm, very true very true. So uh, just to accelerate here through the end of this, so we have Assam goes to Long Z HQ. 
um, walks his way in instead of uh, talks his way in instead of uh, punching his way in. And this is where we have our first view of Leong. Um, Joe Taslam is just unreal <laughs> presence. He's all right. He's so like just the quiet seriousness, yeah. and but usually, oftentimes with a smile. It's mm-hmm. like he's serious even when he's smiling. Uh, the way he adjusts his cuffs, you know, before he's getting ready to to go into battle. Presence, right? He's got so much presence. And through the series, like mm-hmm. his whole journey that he takes, especially through season three, and how things unfold between he and Mai Ling, it's nuts like i cannot believe yeah. uh where it goes and then also where he ends at the end of the at the end of the season mm. uh, as our final our final shots just just really wild but that fight scene is incredible um the notion that they make they see each other make tiny adjustments like he lifts his leg up and then puts it down and um you know andrew's clocking that and it's just fantastic um but if he thought that was his tough battle, uh, <laughs> Assam is in for it when Mai Ling shows up. Mm-hmm. And he's there, um, and very quickly she reveals that she is furious at him um, for basically letting her go into sexual slavery. slavery. And she says, The great warrior Assam crosses the salt to save his poor lost sister. Xiaojing, please. My name is Mai Ling. Xiaojing was a stupid farm girl who died in Sun Yang's bed. So, unbelievable the idea of um, the kind of death, birth, resurrection. Um, and in that way, there is that scene in the riot episode between Atoy and Mai Ling, who are very much in opposition um, through the course of this series. But there is this moment of recognition and respect um, given and and received. Um, What did that mean for you, kind of seeing that journey? And what was it like working with Diane? I loved where the journey of Myling and Atwai take us because I think so often you are expecting, okay, you don't have too many women in the show. We've already set them up to be in opposition toward each other just because of uh, Atoy's proximity and seeming alliance with the Hopway um, because she's in their territory. You know, she's an independent populated white child. Um, and so I think mm. what the audience expected was almost like the clash of the Titans, you know, and, 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 and maybe they were hoping for like a cat fight or something like that. Um, and instead, even though our first official meeting on Spoo in Chinatown is raised with this tension, which maybe sort of meets expectations, it's still done in a way where our toy recognizes that in that moment she has to defer because right. you see that our toy sometimes understands which battles need to be picked and which ones need to be fought with physical prowess or which ones need to be fought with politics. And the next time you see these women, the bookend of it is Chow has led uh, Mai Ling into my Braca, where they yep. both discover that I am mortally wounded. And the big surprise of that scene is not that Chow understands she is about to die right now, but it's that Mai Ling steps up and offers to save her life. Mm-hmm. And I love that because I know we are very much an action show, and that is a big selling point. But I think we are also an incredible dramatic 
And it seems like the one I got to do with Diane Doan, who I'm very good friends with in real life, um, where we got to show the coming together of these two survivors who both have had to endure horrible trauma, who both arguably have been victimized by the men around them, and who have fought tooth and nail to be reborn as these women who find agency and autonomy within these systems that are so designed to destroy women mm-hmm. and that they find power and respect and authority within such horrible circumstances that in that moment of humanity, they really come to see that they have more in common than not. And in season three, I love that they sort of revisit with each other and they're already coming at each other from a very different place now. Now they sort of almost meet again as friends might be too far of a stretch, but there's an understanding and almost an affection Mm -hmm. in how they come together and once again, find a lot of common ground. So I appreciate that kind of writing because it sort of subverts your idea of who women can even be in relation to each other. Mm-hmm. It also honors the history of the show itself. Like to live through an event like the riot, it's going to bind people together for better or for worse, no matter what else. Like the people in your community that have endured this, a, a, a similar trauma they're linked together, you know, everyone who fought in the great war, everyone who, you know, like there, there's a kinship there now. That well, yeah. In, in the riot, in the riot where the Irish have come in and, and are, are just trashing uh, Chinatown in that moment, my Ling says today, we're all Chinese. That's right. Um, and tomorrow we'll have the luxury of going back to our differences or something like that. It's just a great to our own agendas, mm-hmm. our own agendas. Yes. Thank you. Yeah. Amazing line. I was going to bring up that line. Yeah, that all that supports today were Chinese and they're not. Yeah, yeah, yeah exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Um, really, really, really good. And kind of like the classic thing, Tropper, going back to, you know, Banshee, the violence always has a consequence. You don't just like get in a big fight and then the next day you're fine and you're right. just like doing your thing. Like, uh, you know, he wants people to understand the consequences of what happens um, when when people get into that trouble. Also, it's it's funny, like when people talk about like action shows or action movies, it's interesting to me the way they talk about it, because it's almost like they're saying it's action instead of something else, right? Mm-hmm. In lieu of something else. But all the best action things that I've ever seen, it's an additive quality. It's something, right. on you know, and, and if you watch Die Hard, that movie is not nearly as good if you don't have the scenes where John McClane's talking on the white radio to the cop or the scene with Gruber when Gruber's pretending to be one of the businessmen. Or his, his wife or who his goes wife. from like yeah. putting his picture down to wanting to be reconciled with him. That journey's incredible. Yeah, it's like it's a, it's a, it's a story about divorce wrapped up in, in, in a, an action movie, right? And um, that sort of thing is yeah. like, I don't think any of us take that for granted, mm-hmm. that that's a primary concern to our creative team, mm-hmm. that the action is not a substitute for anything else. It's the way that we further the story in another dimension. Yeah. Brett too, who's like just an unbelievable influence on our show, you know, a hugely positive force for the cast as well in terms of our, our care and feeding. Um, you know, he takes that responsibility incredibly seriously that he has Mm -hmm. to be a primary storyteller in the show through the action, you know, Mm -hmm. and through the consequence of action, you know, Totally agree. 
So, and, and like, literally, that is the next scene as Assam mentally or emotionally limps back to the bar, mm-hmm. uh, back to Atoy's. Uh, and it's so funny because uh, Atoy rolls in and she's like, oh, the new guy's packing it in already. <laughs> she's seen it before. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And, and he says, well, I, I'm, I'm having a shitty day. And Chow says, just remember this. A gemstone is not polished without rubbing, nor a man perfected without his trials. No one likes a preachy drunk. Fair enough. Like a preachy drunk. Fair enough. I love that line. Yes. <laughs> so good. Jinx, Matt. Jinx. Mm-hmm. Love mm-hmm. that line. And I love whose reaction. Yeah. Fair enough. And then grabs his top out of these. Yeah. You know, love that scene. Big, before we move on to that real quick, I just want to put another, like, you know, one of the things that really made me take notice about the production and like gave me a lot of hope for the show was uh, watching Koji in that first fight with Joe. Mm-hmm. Uh, Cause he had had a really, really rough go of it physically. He, he was not, no one really, you know, prepares you for a role like this unless, you know, they probably do it for Marvel movies, but they're given like six to eight months of preparation and personal trainers and stuff. And and Koji really put himself through the ringer to knowing that he had this sort of internal responsibility to the legacy of Bruce Lee. And that particular day, that fight scene took a really, really long time. And it was a very big one. And he was, um, he was really sort of at the end of his rope physically. He was like cramping and like, and the thing that I remember, because we didn't really know each other that well at this point in production, none of us, is that he didn't complain. Yeah. He, he could, at, at, after certain takes, he could barely lift his head. Yeah. But he would just gather himself and he'd just go at the next take and he would gather himself. And he would just go at the next take. And I, I thought to myself at the time, this is somebody who is really going to try to lead this show with his efforts. Mm. Um, and that's not something you always see in a younger or or newer actor mm-hmm. that sort of grit i guess and it gave me a lot of hope because i'm like if this is how you know we're being led from the top his efforts jonathan's efforts our head writers evan and josh you know like if we're being led from the top this way we've got a really good shot mm-hmm. at making something special amazing First of all, just the idea of saying, um, okay, so today you're going to fight Joe Taslam for 14 hours. <laughs> Get ready. I mean, that's yeah. a, that's another nightmare. Um, I did not ask him during the junket today about Bruce Lee because I knew every interviewer was going to lead off with a question about Bruce Lee and what he meant to him and all that kind of stuff. But you can imagine, or at least I certainly imagined from the very beginning, the weight of the legacy of knowing you're playing a role that Bruce Lee would have played in his youth if he'd had the opportunity. Um, And just all he, in interviews, uh, you know, he and Brett specifically said that they never tried to imitate Bruce. They never tried to, uh, you know, kind of replicate him, but they always wanted to give little nods, you know, a little, you know, thumb nose or sitting on the guy uh, or grabbing Mm -hmm. the nunchucks. Mm -hmm. And it's just so effective. And he really, I mean, he does a phenomenal job uh, on this show uh, with a lot. And I think that 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 the presence of Bruce Lee is distributed, you know, throughout the entire world, mm. and they've been explicit with that. And I think I think very smartly, everyone in the creative team just sort of recognized that trying to establish one person in the world as like the sole avatar of this icon was a recipe for disaster. Um, right. So right. there are nods through Joe. There are nods through Atoy. There are nods through right. There are these ways that the that his history and his influence is referenced, 
Mm-hmm. So that it's not really placed at the feet of any one character. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the things Jonathan has always talked about is like, uh, otherwise you're not really creating a character. You're creating some strange, you know, some homage to a, a, a pre-existing person or something, you know, and they, and the right. characters have to be able to breathe and live on their own. Stand on um, their own. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, exactly. And in the same way that you'd see, you know, the evolution of a character and see the evolution of an actor embodying our role as the as the as the series goes on and then to see us all getting more comfortable and the skins of the characters of Colin, you know, I think Koji did a really great job finding an authentic expression of himself through this role, which was a big part of Bruce Lee's philosophy. Mm-hmm. You know, it's a famous story of Bruce Lee, I should think Kater, in the Green Lantern and not being Green Hornet. Yeah. Green Hornet and not being happy with his performance because he was more worried about pleasing everybody else that he felt he lost that opportunity to be himself in his mm-hmm. most authentic way on screen. And, you know, that's something that I think you see Koji go, you know, as a new actor coming in to look at this ideal and then a lot of ideas coming at him. And then, you know, by season three, you really see that the time he's had a way through the shift and he's had to develop as a human being and artist come back into the role. And there's like a new kind of confidence and there's an ease of humor and, you know, really finding notes of levity to add dimension to the darkness, which is when he first got it. I don't, I, I remember he said he struggled with it, but he found what that meant to him. And I think that's why people respond so much to this character, because he found his authentic expression and that's what audiences are always going to respond to. Mm-hmm. One of those things that gets, um, that isn't visible to people who aren't actually like, who don't do this work, who aren't part of the industry Uh is that (laughs) it's like, you are, we're in a position where we're supposed to create a final product. We're supposed to create a show that as quickly as possible is in its final form, in its like most polished expert form. Right. But you're working in real time trying to figure out what the hell is going on with your character, with scripts, with, in our case, moving to the other side of the world and living in a city none of us had lived in. I think Tom maybe had done it and Langley's obviously from there, but Mm. most of us, we were not from there. So you're navigating all of these things and you're also trying to, you're trying to get to a product that feels as finished as possible. But there's really a limit, you know? So that whole first season, you're learning. You're just learning stuff. And wow. you're trying to, and, and that's where like editors, post-production, creative team, God bless. they're running cover for you. They are like, all of your boneheaded <laughs> mistakes are coming out. All of the uh-huh. ways that they can help you. And they continue to do it. We just get a little bit better at supplying the, the, the initial stock as well. The raw material, yeah. But you know, that's one of those things that you don't really think about when you watch a television show, how little we all actually know about the characters we're playing and the world we're in. And we're just like working as hard as we can to like learn as quickly as possible. But that's why like by season two, you're kind of like, if you're lucky, you feel like you've got a little bit of a handle on it. And that's when they change stuff. Right. So then they're like, cool, you got that. Here's a bunch of new things. Get ready. Yeah. But you feel a little bit more on your feet. Uh I remember Hoon having a moment with uh, in that scene you brought up earlier, Matt, where uh, the coochie drunk scene. Mm-hmm. And I think it was during that scene where it was the first kind of combination where Hoon, Koji, and myself were working together. We all didn't really know each other. 
And yeah. I, I, I don't remember doing this, but I'm like, I kind of, this rings a bell and it seems like something I would do, which is, <laughs> um, you know, I was just sort of caught up maybe in the idea that, you know, um, Toji was caught up in this, whatever ideas he had about what he had to do. I was kind of caught up in this idea of, I was supposed to be really sexy, mm. you know, optimistic, be a woman who can weaponize her sexuality. So how do I be sexy? And then I think chuckled a bit to himself because I, at one point I, I, I must've been doing this to Koji, but I took my fingers and I like walked them up his arm. I remember this. I don't even remember what, I don't know. I must've been trying to be playful or whatever my idea of sexy was. And, you know, obviously you don't want your other two partner <laughs> right. to uh, chuckle at that. That's not what you're going for when you're trying that out. But I'm going to defend myself here. I guarantee you, I did not chuckle in the scene. <laughs> no. <laughs> I told you about it later. I told you about it later. Yeah. You didn't break on camera, but inside. I'm a professional. Come on. Exactly. Inside you were, no, no, no. no, you told, you didn't break on camera, but you told me afterwards that you were like, she's figuring it out too. That's what we're all figuring out, you know? And I, and you know, when we have these conversations and, you know, Jonathan took me aside and, and sat down with me because he was like, you know, and I know he loves me and I know he trusts me, you know, but he was like, it's not quite happening. Like Chow's not quite there. And we had a dinner and we talked it out, you know, like that's how far into it. Uh, a couple episodes, you know, oh, uh, episodes in. Whoa. Yeah. Yeah. A couple of episodes, you know, and you kind of go wow. because, you know, because he's also being fair, you know, yeah, he's not expecting people to have finished products right out the gate. But, you know, that's what you want. You want somebody who trusts you enough to have the the honest conversation, mm -hmm. right? And so I feel like that's one of the things I trust about the cast as well. You know, I will check in. I remember I had a scene with Kieran and I, I wanted to try something and I didn't know Kieran very well. So I said, hey, I have this thought about this part of the scene. And Kieran just looked at me and he said, yeah, yeah, do whatever you want. Mm -hmm. And it was like so such a liberating thing because he didn't have to say that because I was asking, I, I was imposing on him. Like what I was going to do was going to maybe influence the things he was allowed to do in response. Right. Right. But he just trusted his own abilities and his ability to, to adapt to it. And then his, and, and what we were going to do together, he didn't have any question about it. And that was one of those things that early on, like really connected me to Karen. Yeah. Trust, you know, and, and yeah. And Tom, ironically, one of the things that really connected me to Tom was that he totally yelled at someone. He, um, we were doing, <laughs> we were doing a scene and we were gathering together. It was a director and, um, we had our sides and normally what you try to do, you try to have enough time to have a rehearsal, but in, in sometimes you don't have enough time. Right. And so we're kind of running through this, we're going to run through the lines and then you're going to block out the scene and then you're going to start, right? And so we're starting to read through the lines and the director started sort of positioning us as we were starting our first run through of the lines. Mm -hmm. And then, um, and so he kind of was like, why don't you stand here? So we're kind of reading the lines and he's kind of mumbling to people as he wants them to move. And Tom just at one point just stopped and he said, can we please just read the lines? <laughs> I remember and this was like my first interaction with Tom. Like I had no, and I was like, oh, this guy's going to be, he's going to be that actor. Uh -huh. right? And he was totally not that actor at all. He's the sweetest guy. At all. At all. But what I love is that he was very, very, he just was like, this is the one thing we have to try to, to rehearse. And he protected it. 
you know, not just for himself, but for us, you know, for the other people in the scene. You could imagine him basically, I'll take the bullet. I'll be the guy that, yeah. that is going to say it for everybody. Yeah, but he needs it too. Like he knows he's a professional. He knows yeah, what yeah. he needs to do the thing expected of him. And it, it's that sort of thing where I feel like over time, you know, if I'm f super fatigued on a day or whatever, I know that like I can ask things of my castmates, mm -hmm. you know, in terms of what I need to, in order to work or just to check in and just to have them go like, you know, like if I need to be like, Hey, I'm, <laughs> I feel like I'm really stinking up the joint. Like, what am I doing? You know? And they'll give me the straight dope, you know, right, they'll tell right. me what's actually happening so that I can calibrate, you know? And that's like a wonderful, wonderful feeling because the show is hard to make and you need that support to make it. It just doesn't happen otherwise. Yeah, we've said a million times, like it's a complete miracle that any of this stuff happens. Like what, what you what you all do is such magic uh, in terms of conjuring emotion and presence and the stamina that it takes for you to do that. And then all the work that goes in behind the scenes to get you to that point with the costumes and sets and all that. And then all the post-production, it's just... It's ridiculous uh, that it that it works, but it certainly does here. Yep. I just want to hit two last things, which is we have this great moment where basically Atoy seduces Assam, and I imagine there's some amount of Atoy going, "Okay, I'm going to go ahead and get my hooks in here a little bit." Uh, you know, she's not being seduced by him, and then again we have that incredible music playing, uh, and she makes all the moves, like uh, controlling the position and where they are. Um, but then she immediately sneaks out to get some steel justice. So this is Atoy with a sword, uh, basically getting her Batman on or, you know, her Punisher, her Punisher on. So, and this really continues, um, you know, as the series, as the series progresses, uh, as a really critical part. Was that fun doing that, doing that sword work? It was a lot of fun. I mean, I got to be reunited with my stunt double, Kung Yao. Um, from China. She has doubled me Marco Polo before. Mm. And it, whenever I have a preference, she, I would love to be in question because she's my height. You know, she's a great double for me and she moves like me for poetry. Mm -hmm. So this show has allowed me to reunite with a friend and reunite with one of the greatest teachers for me um, in terms of my own, you know, um, uh, journey into the stunt world because she not only helps to choreograph my team but then she teaches it to me and then she's on set watching my back and making sure that i am able to sell it for at least one take you know all i have to do is hit one take um and so she i, I really enjoy that aspect of the show and my only complaint is that you know our toy is meant to be efficient and she's not showing off she's just using her element to surprise and getting the job done because she she doesn't have what Assam can do, right? Assam can cat and mouse his opponents and he enjoys, you know, there, there's an arrogance to him knowing he's the best and he kind of toys with his opponent. Whereas Atoy, I don't have that size, I don't have that skill, so I just have to take him out as quick as I can. So my only complaint is, you know, my scenes are really short and to the point. And so sometimes I'm like, put me in line, coach, <laughs> you know? Yeah. Well, she does always make sure and get that last twist of the knife, uh, you know, or the sword where you get the feeling that that's where she's kind of exercising the pent up frustration. And that's part of what allows her to maintain that control because she's able to, you know, 
twisted on Strickland, uh, you know, or whatever. One last one last time. It's it's quite good. So after that, we have Assam waking up alone and him doing his moves, and boom, credits. One of the things that is amazing about the show is that every episode has a different credit song mm-hmm. in Chinese. Mandarin, mostly comic Mandarin. Just phenomenal, and it really sets uh, sets the tone uh, in in such a great way. Fantastic, you guys. You should be so proud of what you've done. We we are. I think we are. We'd like to be proud of more. And escape hatch listeners. Yes. That's what we're hoping. I would like to see the next scene with, with Chow. I would like to see his next scene. <sighs> you know, it's so funny. People ask me about that all the time. The, the honest of answer course. is I don't know. I really don't know. Yeah. Like people, people, people assume I do know. And I was like, listen, they don't, they write the seasons as required. Like, I don't actually know what, what the character's fate is, but I do know that like whatever I could do to help secure a season four, I would do, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Well, everyone, everyone listening to this, go check out warrior seasons one through three. It's only 10 episodes a season. It's not like 70 episodes you have to watch. It's like, it's very, (laughs) I binged it all. Like I was doing two or three episodes a day. I was going nuts on it. uh, Last (laughs) year. That's a lot. It was a lot, but I, I, you know, uh, that was after finishing Banshee. uh, So so much. Yeah. So, so I had to get, I had to get that going. Well, I knew you were coming on the pod, so I was going to have to be, have to be ready. Yeah. That's, that's kind of you, man. I appreciate that. We appreciate you, Matt. But yeah, uh, yeah thank you all so much. Thank uh, you. And we will we'll talk to you soon. Sounds good. Thank you. Sounds good. Thank you, Matt. Damn. Love those guys. So cool. So down to earth. So smart and thoughtful. And you can just, the passion, um, just coming off them, uh, it, it, it's inspiring. That's it for that portion. Now I'm going to kick it over to the full audio of uh, the actual press junket itself. So if you enjoyed the beginning snippet and you want to get a little bit more, stay tuned. Otherwise, we'll see you next week for Sunshine. Peace. This is Matt Herrero from the Escape Hatch podcast. And Matt, you've got 10 minutes with us. Awesome. Hey, y'all. Nice to meet you. And so let's just get into it. Olivia, Atoy is a pretty emotionally controlled character. So what does it mean for you that over the course of the show, she opens up um, and lets herself be a little more vulnerable and especially in her interactions with Nellie? I think as an actress and artist, you want to be able to have these layered, multidimensional characters to play. And I think the way Atoy presents at first, the fact that we're given the opportunity to subvert that initial idea of who she is and bring you into what makes her vulnerable, you know, I think that's the truth of human beings, right? As strong as someone is, they are equally as fragile. Mm. Is the character who allows Atoy to expose and check in and remember um, some of that human fragility that she actually carries. And of course, by season three, very much feels like she's losing control of that mask. Um, and I think that's always an interesting arc because people don't necessarily see themselves in a the character's greatness and strength. They probably see themselves more in their flaws and very, very, very human vulnerability. And it's through that doorway that I hope people come to uh, 
relate to and love Altoy. Nice, nice. And Miranda, um, you know, Atoy started at the bottom and sort of crawled her way up, you know, into this level where she's operating. Nellie, you know, wealthy socialite started at the top and then chose to come down. So what really compelled her to make that decision and get involved in this way? I think, I mean, there was a, a great monologue. I mean, a great bit of writing from Jonathan, which was actually my audition scene for the show, which mm. was talking about her husband having a heart attack on top of this 14-year-old girl. And the the revulsion with which she spoke of her husband and the compassion with which she spoke of the girl. And I think for her, it wasn't about, you know, obviously she's a gay woman, but it wasn't her, about her sexuality and it wasn't about it wasn't about race. It was about humanity and about having the, you know, needing to find this connection. I don't think she set out to seduce our toy necessarily, but I think, you know, having this, this extraordinary bond with this woman who, of course, they are, they are from worlds apart and yet they are, they are united in, in, in so many ways. Um, yeah, you know, mm. I like it. I like it. Um, Perry, as we start the show, Father June is the head of the biggest gang in Chinatown, but is starting to feel things slip a bit. Um, and so I would love to have you describe your relationship with his son, Young June, and specifically, how much of himself does he see in Young June, and, and how does that affect how he, how he interacts with him? At the beginning of the series, I am uh, introduced as the, the, the strongest, you know, uh, the leader of the most nefarious, notorious Tong in Chinatown. And um, but, you know, like like all Chinese Confucianist fathers, they are the head of the household. It is extremely a patriarchal culture. So and it's very important that the son, you know, follows in line. And it's very important that the son, you know, respects the father. So, you know, but young June is American. Right. So it's about finding his own individuality. And that's what, you know, the writers wrote into this. It's another generation. It's not China. We're here in Chinatown. Young June is an American, you know, which is amazing. So Father June has to wrestle with that. But, you know, I didn't want to give up the tongue, right? In season two, I lost it. They took it from me, right? You know, but then realizing that there is, you know, change and Father June's philosophy, if he's traditionally uh, Asian, is there's Confucianism and Taoism is you respect the changes in, in the world, you know, the winter becomes summer and uh, spring and so forth. So I see the shift, uh, Father June sees the shift in leadership and lets young June take over, but, you know, still is going to try to uh, inform him of the proper way of doing things, you know, and eventually I really love what, what uh, the writers did was it becomes not only a societal struct, you know, uh, examine uh, examination of society in these uh, tongs, but a father and son story. So we go into who father, who the father June is as a father, and who young June is as a son. And uh, Jason Tobin and I, you know, you know, I love working with Jason. He's such an amazing actor. Is that he really? We we just like to connect and understand what we're doing together, so that we can enjoy and let this thing sort of um, vibrate together on the same page. And we thought, you know, this is really just about a father and son. And it turns out that it's an Asian American father and son on television. We never get to like show that in Hollywood, a Chinese American father and son. So we think. This is the first time that we can dramatize the situation. What would we like to share in these lines that, you know, the writers wrote? And uh, we found just a lot of like, you know, careful empathy and compassion for each other and understanding the struggle. And yet it's through the love and support of family that, you know, we can carry on. 
this is sort of the underlying thing that on is that that's on top of the words that were written in the script. Mm, I love that. And and even the connection between uh first generation immigrants, children coming in as Americans and kind of having that struggle between uh you know two cultures even to today, right? That that still happens when people when people come. I'm the uh, struggle. I'm the struggle. Yeah. And then, so just talk about uh, your know, family uh, is such an important part. Um, when Father June brands uh, Assam, he says loyalty above all. So can you all talk about kind of family versus kind of uh, chosen family, right? Whether it's Atoy and Assam uh, or Atoy and, and Nelly, like, can you talk about what that means? I think in this world where you have so many immigrant, uh, immigrant characters who have been torn by choice or circumstance from their families of origin, it really does become uh, that chosen family in our world. Whether, you know, for, 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 for me, you know, one of the family members that I choose day one is a son. And that proves to be uh, a, a very dysfunctional relationship in certain uh -huh. ways. You know, and one of the most interesting family relationships for Atoy because they really do grow together. And I think by season three, I remember even saying to Koji, I'm like, wow, our positions are really reversing because now I'm becoming the one who doesn't want to talk, who has things to hide. And he's the one who's reaching for information. He's the one who's trying to be nurturing and caring and protective. And I'm like, you know, shoving him off and just trying to like go off and deal with things on my own. And then, of course, you know, my chosen family with Nellie is very much threatened by the circumstances of season three because the fear of losing her puts Atoy into a position where she decides, well, in my own way, I'm going to be in control of this. And instead of having you torn from me or having this risk, all this other family that I have, I have to do what I think is best and tear myself from one of the most key relationships that actually probably anchors Atoy in this world where there's just so much violence um, predicated upon it. Yeah, yeah. Um, so all three of you have had opportunities to mix it up in martial arts, doing stunts and, and action. So I just wanna, I'm gonna be taking a poll today for everybody. So just a quick lightning round. Which character is the greatest fighter in the show and who is the toughest actor on the show? Lightning round. Uh, I think Atoy is the greatest uh, swordsman. Woo! Yeah. I think Hassam is greatest hand-to-hand. -hand, and I think Joe Taslam, no, Dean Jagger. Dean Jagger's legit one of mm. the toughest. I think mm. if you got everyone in a room and just somebody had to beat the shit out, that would be Dean, right? I think <laughs> Yeah. You know. Yeah. If you ever get Dean to really talk about where he comes from, like... Yeah, he's tough, man. Been in it. He's been, been in, in it. it. Yeah, the sweetest teddy bear, but he's tough. Yeah. Mm, mm. And and was it like what was the hardest part for you all getting in and doing your portions of those fights? Uh, just briefly, was it the training, the physical, or, or the actual uh, choreography? Thank you for asking that. It's on cobblestone streets and stilettos. <laughs> 
That's I don't do a lot of fights, but I enjoyed training with Brett Chan's uh, Hits International Company. It's amazing. They allow me in, to train with them every morning. It's like training with the Navy SEALs, you know. But I did have one fight with the Tong Fa in season one, and, and it was choreography, remembering your lines between choreography, and then adjusting every time the camera does this. Oh, can you hold it there before you say the line because the camera's here? So it's a lot of mental stuff as you're doing physical and intellectual stuff. Yeah. For season three, I, I flew to Cape Town five weeks post C-section with my son. Whoa. So, so, and everybody was amazing. But at seven weeks post C-section, I was flying onto crash mats just out of competitive spirit going, no, no, it's fine. It's fine. Because <laughs> all these guys, that's what they kind of bring out of you, you know. <laughs> you all are amazingly committed and, and we appreciate it so much. Thank you. And you guys have a great uh, time and looking forward to season four. Thank you Thank so you, much. Matt. We appreciate you. Of course. Have a great day. Okay, take it easy. <laughs> All right, this is Matt from Escape Hot Podcast. Hi, Matt. Hey, Matt. Really great to meet you all. Um, I got uh, in, into Warrior by virtue of we had uh, Tropper on our podcast and had Hoon on the podcast and uh, huh. and so have been a, have been a huge fan. And, and Langley, you know, Tropper loves his bad guys uh, and, and loves making them really textured. Uh, and mm. Buckley certainly is no exception. So uh, with him sort of at the root of you know crime and corruption and murder unrest. Mm. Um, make the case for, you know, Buckley's doing what he thinks is right and, and why. Hmm. Yeah, I guess, you know, um, every, every, every actor has to uh, approach every character from the viewpoint that this character is right and that this character's argument and his views and his standpoint has to be right in any, any given scene, especially where he is at loggerheads with another character. Um, and I guess one of the things that makes Buckley so interesting as a character is uh, his dynamic with uh, with Mai Ling, uh, and, and the fact that that being in this alliance with her goes against so many of the, I suppose, ideological views that he seems to support and put out there, uh -huh. um, and and yet he's such an enigmatic character there's so much about him that is mysterious and that we're not sure of that you know you were the audiences i think always uh, hope left wondering what's this guy going to do next because he he we, we we're not actually we're not actually given any real evidence as to what his agenda is uh and what he ultimately wants to do what is he actually you know what is his what is what is making him tick here what is what is driving him here? Um, because what he's saying politically is not necessarily what he's what he's doing, and the the person that he appears to be um, politically again is not necessarily the person who he appears to be on a personal level. So yeah, um, it's gonna be it'll be interesting to see where where he goes uh, from the perspective of he doesn't always look. All the like, he doesn't have aspirations, or at least doesn't communicate them that he's trying to go all the way. But he is sort of at every step, he's working hard um, to make that happen. As opposed to yeah. you know, my link who, who is always pushing to break through to the next level. Um, mm. And in your mind, uh, you know, Diane, do, have you seen or uh, how do you feel about her sometimes coming up short because she's pushing so hard um, to make things happen? 
as an actor, it's been incredibly fun playing that, you know, um, I joked that throughout the seasons I did, I, my Ling doesn't get to fight and I'm like, someone's got to take her out at some point, you know, put me in. There's, there's only so much you can do before someone tries to really, um, eliminate the threat. Um, and I feel like in this, in this past season, you know, being able to go into different worlds for my Ling, it's, it's always for the betterment. She says, it's always for the betterment of the Tong. Um, mm. And, and, and a lot of that has to be like proving myself within the tongue. How do I get these men of, of a certain um, generation and ideas of, of leader and powership? Um, how do I get them to see me on eye level? So she's always searching for that approval. Um, you know, even with, even with Assam trying to reconnect with that relationship that just clearly isn't meant to be. Um, so yeah, it, it's been, I'm totally veering off question, but um, <laughs> that's okay. Like what? Yeah, it it it. She's just she's always searching for more, and I feel like that's the flaw of her. Is like it's never enough. You know what will be enough for you to be happy? But it's that constant threat of um and that insecurity that someone's coming for her, um, which I think is her biggest downfall, really. Of course, yeah, because she's yeah. suffered so much, right? Exactly. And, and and that unwillingness to allow herself to be exposed to that again, mm -hmm. which is mm -hmm. part of what makes, you know, that moment, um, you know, at the end of, towards the end of season three, where things kind of come to a head with uh, Leong, and yeah. she doesn't really know what, you know, what's happening in that moment uh, and how safe she is. That That's just a, a truly heartbreaking, um, heartbreaking moment. You know, Langley, do you think at this point, who has the upper hand? Do you think, does Langley feel like he's firmly in control of this relationship or, uh, you know, is he being surprised? Oh, as Langley, I know I'm, I never have the upper hand in this relationship, but as Bucky, <laughs> <laughs> uh, you know, I think, um, I think he does. He, he, he and, and I think, you know, that is, that is what's great about th these two is that they both do believe that they have the upper hand and are constantly looking for ways to both exploit each other and undermine each other to get the upper hand. But with the long game, playing the long game of knowing that this is a partnership, um, you know, Buckley, I think in season two said, don't mistake uh, what we have here for friendship. But, but, he, but he very much recognizes that this is a, an ally um, that, is, that, that he's, in, he's in there for the long run with, with, with my Ling. Um, but he has to constantly be looking for, and she, constantly looking for a weak spot, a way to get the upper hand in the relationship, even if it's just for a short time, because those short-term gains could have yield great results. Um, but yeah, I think, I think they're both also master um, plotters in terms of looking ahead and plotting out a long game. And, and Buckley's you know, way of modus operandi is very much, he's a plotter. Because yeah. he's not he's not a, a glamorous swashbuckling um, hero who goes in and with grand bold gestures he's he plots methodically and right. he pl and he plods and but he knows that the plotting is going to get him to the next level by being consistent. Well, um, we'll, we'll see. But, I mean, he's it's super interesting the fact that he maybe is in for a big surprise, uh, you know, as we as we exit season yeah. three. And so I love mm. I love that that's kind of hanging there. Um, mm. And I also love, you know, it, 
I am pushing for obviously, you know, supporting you all for season four all the way. Yeah. I will say that in the way that it ended, especially for uh, my Ling, I felt very mm. satisfied in that moment. And I can have my story of where things go um, from there. Um, and it does feel like a nice capstone. Lightning round. Who is the best fighter on the show? And who is the toughest actor on the show in terms of fighting ability? Oh, <laughs> um, lightning round. I think I'm going to go with Joe Taslim. Okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, yeah. the fact that he's a, a judo champion in real life, that man can kill you with, <laughs> he really can. Yeah. <laughs> yeah I'm yeah. going to go with, yeah, for sure. I'd go Joe, Joe, the best fighter. And in terms of dogged spirit, um, I, I think Dean Jagger. Yes. Oh, 100%. 100%. Yeah. Yeah, I think if you have the two of them, and they're very close, to have the two of them to be up against the two of them, <laughs> you wouldn't stand a chance. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you all so much. Really appreciate it. Wonderful oh to meet you. Thank you so much, Matt. Thank you. Thank you so much. Yes. Hey. Hello. What's happening? Hey, Matt. How are you? I am very well. Wonderful to see you all. I'm going to just jump right in here. So... Chow is this impartial fixer. He's floating between all the factions um, all the time. So, Hoon, how do you think about his ethos and his value system and, and you know, his sort of modus operandi of not getting involved um, and where that leaves him? I think he's basically a kind of funhouse mirror of everything he thinks uh, is of a of an American mindset. You know, he's a capitalist at heart. He's a he can negotiate with anyone. He can make a deal with anyone, and making the deal is what allows him to climb a social ladder. It allows him to prove that he's as good as anybody. His money's as good as anybody, and I think that he's kind of clinging to that sort of promise of American idealism. Um, almost in denial of all the other pressures and things that that work against that and work against that sense of equality that are so obvious and exist in the world around him. Um, mm. But that's a really interesting place to play him because in a way he's very idealistic, in a way he's very principled. It just, um, it isn't necessarily in the law-abiding way. <laughs> right, right. Well, speaking of the law, uh, Karen, I love <laughs> bill right he's big he's tough he's brave uh you know he can take the punches for sure um but he handsome <laughs> sure handsome absolutely Your he beard smells is fantastic <laughs> <laughs> the beard is certainly on point uh, but Thank he you. is compromised uh you know via co via corruption you know almost immediately and and takes a wild ride uh through the series so how did you kind of think about that uh and how do you judge him over the course of the series uh well, I mean, Bill's just surviving, you know, he's playing the cards he gets and he's, he's using the tools at his disposal. Um, so the, the I don't, I don't ju judge him as it were. I, I just try and inhabit somebody who's surviving and, and doing their best. And I think, uh, I think he does learn some stuff over the season. Um, he's got some pretty terrible vices, you know, mm. I, I, my, my view of Bill, when I read him on the page was a guy who had been through a lot and was coping. You know, he's got a lot of he's got a lot of strategies for coping in very stressful situations. And actually, you know, it was written in and uh, Tom and I discussed this. Our characters discussed this in the first few episodes. These guys are veterans of a war. You right. Know? This guy has. Gettysburg. PTSD. Yeah. 
Uh, but this guy's got PTSD. He's also working in an incredibly dangerous city and he's constantly smoking, drinking, gambling. He has vices that are coping strategies and he's and he's got to put on a front that he's a strong person. So like um, I, I like that people think he's a villain or they don't like him, but I like that they reluctantly come around because at the heart, hopefully they see a human being. You know, the showrunners give us a lot. So, yeah, I, I definitely never looked at him as a villain. Uh, I looked at him as somebody who was definitely wrestling with his demons. And um, yeah. he was the first person to really kind of represent uh, the Chinese population in the police force. And that was really important. Um, but then obviously, once his, uh, you know, partner Lee shows up, you know, Lee is such a great compass for the show um, because mm -hmm. he starts out squeaky clean and really idealistic. But then over time, we learn that he has his own demons that he's running from and his own struggles uh, with vices. So, Tom, as you look at it, what do you like playing more? Do you like the downfall arc or do you like the redemption uh, arc? Which which side is more kind of challenging or interesting as an actor? Really great question. I, I I think it's, you know, comparing them and say which one I would prefer. I don't know. Uh, I think the main thing that's really great to play, I suppose, is just having a, a secret as large as that. I think the one that probably is most meaty it, just to answer your question would probably be the downfall mm. <laughs> and it's something that you know i i hope with lee is 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 uh pretty understandable in a lot of ways yes yeah definitely i mean it was such a you know the the, the ride he takes through season three and the final scene um, uh, that your characters share on the on the porch, I was just like pumping my fist in the air, like uh, you know, <laughs> yeah. really, really. That's such a up. great scene. Yeah, we didn't know how long it would take for us to kind of find each other again, and mm. I think we were both quite shocked when we read that scene, and not not in a negative way. It was, it felt like a bit of a gift again, um, and uh, you know, I, th there's gifts throughout the season, but I, I I look forward to those scenes with. Bill in a very specific way, partly just because of it, it was where we started. It's where we started the show. So it feels a, a little bit like home if there ever was one in the show. Amazing. I, I, so I, I like the notion that we see all these different factions, right? You've got Chinese and you've got you know, Americans that are there, but it's established. I was rewatching the pilot again and you know, you have Lee immediately because he's a Confederate, the Irish are, are not happy with him at all. Um, and I guess, Hoon, my question is, you know, one of the big themes here is xenophobia and, and immigration mm -hmm. and, and, and populism. So um, what do you kind of what do you see that's changed and, and what stayed the same? And what do you hope people will take as a lesson out of the show? Well, nothing's changed in the sense that nothing's been cured. Let's call it that. Right. Mm -hmm. um, we are looking at the same challenges, we're lensing them in slightly different ways. We have a larger body of history and experience to draw from. We have different voices. We have different ways of speaking to each other about it, sometimes less effective, sometimes less clear. Um, but this is one of the things I value most about the show is um, it can be cold comfort, but comfort nonetheless to, to recognize that we are in a constant process of of addressing these concerns and addressing these questions and that they come to us in waves and that our job is to stand tall in the wave and to make sure it doesn't overwhelm us um, so that we can see further. And I think that that is something we we struggle through with the, in the show with the individual characters. And in doing so with individuals, you can humanize the, the idea and keep it from being so abstract as to be meaningless. 
and um, just an ideology that people can cling to. When you're talking about Tom's character, one of the things that's really interesting and unique about Tom's character is that his stakes are very unique in our world. Most of the people in the world are sort of already ruined, you know, for, for lack of a better <laughs> word. And so when you look at Officer Lee, you see someone who could really fall because we believe that he is morally correct in, in his way. You know, he's, he's the difference between um, someone doing the right thing and someone doing the law-abiding thing. Right? Uh -huh. He does the right thing. Um, uh -huh. But we see someone who could easily fall into that trap of, of only doing the law-abiding thing, which might lead him into a different kind of corruption and a different kind of danger. So I, I, I don't, I'm not surprised at all that people fasten to, to that character in that particular way. Um, because he is somewhat mm. unique in, as a quantity in our world. I love that. So obviously, Hoon has been with Jonathan Tropper for two shows before this. So he knew what fighting was going to look like and what he was going to have to do. Uh, Tom, Karen, for you guys, what was it like uh, you know, doing these fights? Like, What was the hardest part? Was it the training? Was it uh, choreography? Was it the actual execution of the moment? Um, what was that that journey like for you? Well, I mean, there's so many to sort of talk about, and they've all felt quite different. I don't, I, I don't think I've had anything quite as epic as what Kieran experienced in season three. Because that was a season a three was a bear. Cool. Yeah. Well, I think we, we with the thing of us, like I never looked at our characters as like the fighting side of things. You know, we we actually have a lot of action through the show. Tom does way more. I think Tom does way more fighting than I do. But like those those characters, it always comes out of character. Whether you, the mm -hmm. you know whoever we're everywhere on the show, every move, every bit of choreography is inspired by what Jonathan and the guys write, and it, it's all got intention behind. It's all story. Um, it, it was uh, it was great. I've never been on a show where we've had training every morning, where we've had an amazing unit run by yeah. uh, Brett Chan that we, we, we can go there that's our green room we hang out every day we train and we decompress as well you know making warrior is a hard job you know we're, we're working on multiple sets and um, the fighting actually is one of the things that I think bonds us and and on, under Brett's tutelage I think it, it's therapeutic and it's made us even closer mm -hmm. and and I think it's the best fighting on TV I, I I just think by by a long way I think it's oh the best. hands hands down I was watching I was yeah. watching uh, the the riot episode uh, I, I, no one's attempted anything of that scope any anything close to the scope I wish I wish you could have been there and seen behind the scenes of how we shot that because we had oh multiple cameras across the lot and we would shoot one bit and then we would stop and we'd have to go quiet and then someone else on the other side would shoot and then they'd stop and then we'd prep the next bit and that was happening like these little pockets of action those guys are incredible like you should see the previsors they are amazing they could make a TV show just about his tent and to feel safe in that environment to yeah. know that you are being cared for in that environment is 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 a, a further testament to to brett's leadership and his whole team johnny jason all of those guys amazing well it's a it's a huge testament that the fighting is so incredible but it's not even the best part of the show um and you you, you have truly Appreciate created that. something that that is you know act, you know sex and violence and uh and intensity but always through an amazing character lens uh so it's just a huge huge success on that front thank you Thank you. It's it's careful collaboration between the writers. I'd say one thing that shocked me or surprised me about working with the team was immediately Jonathan said, we've got a page turn, um, Kieran. And I was like, what's that? And he said, it's a meeting where you and I sit down and we just go through the scripts that we've got so far. And you can ask me any questions about your character. And I was like, nobody in 20 odd years has ever done that. <laughs> 
And wow. it meant, it just meant that that was just one meeting. And then constantly through the three years, all the writers, producers were constantly um, talking to each other. They listen, they, they yeah. collaborate on, on such a detailed level. It is exhausting doing that. It is, and it, and it is challenging and it's hard, but it makes everybody really care about their arcs and, and what they're pro producing but, and how they're providing for the show. So it, it also, there is so much trust invested and I've never felt um, more like a creative team just want to give you the character to to to, to be the champion of. Um, and it's you know from everybody, Evan, Brad, Josh, like it's a, quite an amazing team in that regard. Yeah. Sorry, Matt. I think we're being told yeah. to wrap up a little bit. Okay, so. very good. I was going to say they weren't they hadn't pinged me. So listen, thank you guys so much. Uh, and Hoon, I'll you. see you a little bit. I'll see you thank in a bit. You so much, mate. All right. Thanks. Cheers. Bye. Take care. Got Matt. Oh, uh, nice. Hey, what's up, Matt? Hey, you are great to great to meet you. Um, I'm going to jump right in just so we can use the time as much as we can. So, mm, mm, it it really works, and, and I will say the relationship between Asylum and Young June is one of my very favorite of the whole show. Um, and so, Jason, I also I just freaking love Young June. He's badass. He's fast. He's funny. Deadly. <laughs> Uh, so my question to you, I asked Perry how much he, you know, Father June sees in young June, uh, you know, himself. My question to you is what is the kind of balance between young June's ambition for its, its own sake versus for his father's approval? Mm, you know, uh, they're so intrinsically uh, linked and woven together. Um, yeah, I mean, it's hard to separate, but but really, I think it, what it is is he wants his father's approval, but he also knows that uh, he wants to do things his own way. He still thinks that he knows better, and um, uh, and I think that's where the, the real struggle is. And I think that's where we see young Junes from season one, episode one, to end of season three, is you know um, him coming to realize. And I think we all kind of. Uh, this happens to us right which is um you know when you're younger you you know there's a point where you kind of rebel against your parents and what they think and then <laughs> right, later right. on you, know, you get to a point you're like actually they were kind of right about certain things i may have been right about one or two things but yeah dad was kind of right about this <laughs> um and so so you know life imitates art or art imitates life and um uh and this is one thing that i've always really enjoyed about uh working with perry and 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 with uh JT and the writer's work is um, uh, how I get to um, explore those things that are happening in my real life um, through through our you know medium. Mm. Mm. I, the one thing that uh, Perry said I thought that was amazing was that uh, Father June is Chinese and Young June is American, and that's the <laughs> difference between how they how they approach things. So wow. so Chen. Yeah. Um, Hong arrives like this amazing blast of just fun and magnetic energy in season two. Um, so what was it like joining the show midway? And did, did these two guys haze you as much as Hong got hazed? What was it like stepping in? It was terrible. They hazed me every day. I, I, <laughs> I, I no, it was awesome. Are you kidding me? Like it was, it was scary because I, I said this in an earlier interview. Um, it's like being the new kid at school. Mm. and maybe even like the weird new kid you know <laughs> like i knew i was like okay i'm coming in here with this guy and um i remember even the first van ride just said everybody was just like you're part of the family now man let's go and mm. i 
that. I love that. I it made everything so much easier because um, it could have easily been so stressful. But um, yeah, they they kind of carried me through. They kind of carried me through the first, my first season. Incredible. These two, yeah, we can work with crazy. <laughs> uh, I want to ask you all, you know, American television so rarely features Asian, uh, Asian American characters as the leads. Certainly they don't show them, uh, on television having a three-way. Um, so what does it mean for, for you all to have the opportunity to, to provide the, the representation and just to really take that lead role? Um, what, what does that mean to you for the show? Uh, yeah, I mean, it means a lot. I think we, yeah, we've been asked this question a few times now. And I think as we're, I think we're all in agreement that we've always, all three of us here, uh, especially wanted to become actors, you know, not necessarily Asian actors, but obviously there's been some, uh, there was, uh, diversity things going on and all the, in the past, especially when actually before, before Warrior, uh, you know, um, and uh, Crazy Rich Asians kind of time you know there was a lot of struggles with uh um having these kind of characters or shows on on, on film or tv in the west so um i think it, to be able to be part of uh being able to get to that point where we can all just you know get on with it um and be seen as uh i guess performers and and, and you know in in our own right rather than an asian one or whatever i think they've Warrior can contribute to that, and I think we're all pretty chuffed about that. I'd say, how about you guys, Chen, Jason? Echo everything. It's a real honor. Yeah, yeah. Especially yeah. this time. Yeah. This time. Mm. Yeah, it's so iconic seeing the three of you. You know, when you have the suits on and you're walking through the streets, slow motion, just the the baddest ass. Uh, you know, guys that have ever been there. Um, each of you has your signature weapons. So, uh, you know, whether it's nunchucks or what's the chain called, Chen? It's a chain. It's a necklace. It's just called chain. Yeah. And, uh, it's just and then, chain. It's just a rope. <laughs> it's still chain. Okay. And, then, and then the knife. So how, how, what was it like for you all getting to mastery of those and, and being able to work that from a choreography standpoint? Well, well I mean, like I've, I'm pretty much certain uh, speaking for all of us, uh, mastery, we are not. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, we the fact we managed to make it look like I think that's our job. I think as 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 as, as actors, I guess, is to to make it look like if we've managed to do the to to make it look like we've we can we can know what we're doing with those things because nunchucks or any form of martial art takes years and years and years and years of just constant yeah. constant master constant mastering. You never you've never mastered it really. Um, so I guess the fact that it, as long as we put in the work and it looks like we managed to make it. Uh, look like we're, we've mastered it, then I think we've done our job. <laughs> yeah. mm. What do you guys think? They literally, when they told me the weapon I was going to have, I was like, literally, and you know, having done some martial arts in the past, and especially with, with Kung Fu and Wushu, who actually use a whip chain like that, I was like, you pick like the hardest weapon to use <laughs> for me to like play. So now I got to really yeah. like, work it out yeah. for me. Young Jun's of you, you're like, yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Come on, man. So I, I remember when I when I got the job, right? Like, um, in in the first uh, script, there was no mention of what Young Jun's weapons were, right? Like, the, mm. the character still 
the character gets developed as we go along. So I, I, you know, I land in Cape Town for the first time and you know, I go meet, you know, hair and, you know, we talk about the hair and then they, you know, come up with the pompadour, they go to the costume and they're like, Hey, how about this? And we got this costume. So these weren't written in the script, you know, they, they, they happen, you know, over, uh, with the collaboration of other artists. Then I go into the stunt tent and I meet Brett and the team and he's like, Hey, you know, young June, we, had this idea that uh you know he's got two knives what do you think and i'm just like i think that's good <laughs> and they showed me like this uh previous with uh with hayang my 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 stunt double and, and teacher and they showed you know showed me him moving with the knives and i just thought oh man that is so cool and <laughs> it just adds it's just another layer that adds to to, to the character and uh and fortunately for me um you know which is opposite to what Chen just um, expressed, which is, you know, at least with the knives, to me, it's it's just kind of like boxing. You know what I mean? I can throw my right. hands and, you know. Right, they'll, and figure, so they'll figure it out. It's just, it's just hands with some knives in and I get Whereas, what? you know, whipping a chain around or none. Whereas me, I'm over here yeah. like every, every, every one, yeah. third take you hit your oh, face, you hit man. some part of your body. Yeah. Oh my God. Yeah. All right, one word yeah. answer for you guys as we were just coming to the end of time. Who is yeah. the greatest fighter on the show? Leon. Joe Taslin. Oh, oh, oh my God. Yeah. No way. Yeah. Perry, Perry, Father June with a shotgun. I don't care how. Oh, yeah. Ah, yes. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I like that. <laughs> yeah. 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 All that yeah. stuff comes out the window when you got a gun. Yeah. 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 Amazing. Amazing. All right, Morgan, is that it? I don't want to, I don't want to go over. Uh, thank you. Yeah, we do need to wrap it up. Okay. Thanks, Thanks you guys. Wonderful so to meet you. And I'll, we'll see you for season four. Thank yes. you so much. Change the show oh. the first two weeks. Thumbs up. And that's it for this episode of Escape Patch. I want to thank Hoon, Olivia, and the entire cast of Warrior for an awesome conversation. Next week, the film cast's Devendra Hardawar joins us to cover Killian Murphy, Danny Boyle, and Alex Garland's sci-fi masterpiece, Sunshine. If you're enjoying the show, we need your help. Take a minute to leave us a five-star rating and review wherever you listen to your podcast, or just tell your friends about us because it really does help the listeners find the show. We also have a Discord server where you can hang out with us online whenever you want, and a Patreon where you can support us and unlock exclusive perks. Links are in the show notes. Escape Patch is a tape deck podcast, John, a production of H Industries. Our artwork is by Catcher, and our theme music is composed by Scott Fritz at Who's the Boss Music. The episode was edited and produced by me, H. Thanks for listening. We'll see everybody next week. Matt. Yes. Thank you for your time. Thank you so much. Perry, it was really fun. I was just talking to uh, you. You got called out as the best fighter in the show with a shotgun. So <laughs> you won. That's pretty awesome. Thank you, man. I mean, it was amazing. Your your questions are great, you know, and yeah. Thank you. Thank you Thanks. so much. This, this show means a lot to me. It really is. It really is incredible. Um, so mm -hmm. you should be very, very proud of what you've done. I think we all are. Thank you so much.